Amen. You can open up your Bibles tonight to Genesis chapter 1. And uh, let's get verse number 1. Genesis 1, 1. Where better to begin than in the beginning? Genesis 1 and 1. Can I thank you all? Many of you have sent messages this week and uh, mentioned that you're praying for our family. Just had a lot of sickness going through it. I appreciate those of you that brought meals by. We didn't even ask, but you really pitched in and it helped out. And I, I do appreciate all of that love and care. And, and I, I know that it goes on not just for my family, but uh, for a lot of others in this church. And I really do encourage you guys, uh, continue to get to know each other a little bit. Introduce yourself to visitors. Any of you that are here for the first time tonight, we're glad that you're with us. We'd like to get to know you a little bit better. So give us a chance to shake your hand later and introduce ourselves to you. And, and uh, we hope that at one point we can be more than just a church to you, but a family. Uh, I sure have benefited from having this spiritual family in my life. I have no clue why the Lord wants me to share this other story with you. It just has been on my heart for the last hour or so. It has nothing to do with my sermon. I just want to talk about it. There was a guy named Billy Bray. Any of you know that name, Billy Bray? Some say that he was the happiest Christian ever. This man, he wasn't a very rich man, not a very educated man. He would preach from time to time, but was never a pastor in any church. But this man, everywhere he went, just had the joy of God overflowing. I mean, his cup was filled to overflowing. And the story comes to mind about him being invited to somebody's house for a dinner one night. And he was sitting around the table and they were bringing the food and, and he was seated next to a 13-year-old girl. And he turned to this teenager and he said, young lady, are you born again? And she said, well, yes, I am. And Billy Bray got so excited. He said, woo, praise the Lord. And he grabbed her hand and jumped up out of his chair and started jumping around the dining room, going around the table saying, isn't it wonderful? She's born again. She's saved. And then came and sat back down. Can you imagine starting the dinner with that? <laughs> it's one thing to pray over the food, but to dance around it? <laughs> That's all sorts of joy. Amen. I enjoyed this morning. I don't know about you guys, but that little meet and greet we did for I didn't think you guys would do that well, to be honest with you. I love you folks, but I, I was really, Garrett, weren't, weren't we a little concerned? I told Garrett, I don't know how this is going to go. Man, as soon as we said go and the music started to play, you guys, man, the place was a buzz and everybody's meeting each other. That was outstanding. Thought about doing it tonight, but didn't want to press my luck. Amen. <laughs> but we, we'll try that again sometime soon. Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 1. I hope you know this verse. Genesis 1 verse 1 in the beginning in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth well that's about good enough for reading let's pray about it father please help us tonight thank you for the singing oh God I've been blessed already how great thou art Lord I could I could hear that song sung for hours and I can't wait one day when we bow in your presence and say, My God, how great thou art. Truly the half has not been told. Lord, uh, we're about to embark on some, some things for me that are a little difficult to talk about in certain points. Please help. Lord, I pray that you would show up tonight. I pray that you'd speak to our hearts. Lord, you know the needs of everybody here. Would you please help them, minister to them. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I, as we were singing this last song here, that first verse seemed to fit real nicely with how this sermon is going to start or this lesson, whatever you'd like to call it. Oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider, consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. It's amazing how much power is found in the first verse of the Bible. The very first verse is just filled with so much awesome truth. And when I say awesome, I mean things that grab our attention and cause us to stand or kneel or bow or fall to our face in awe. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech and night. It brings forth a message to us constantly declaring the eternal power and Godhead, always showing us just how great of a God we, we have. 
This sermon tonight, I I must admit, is going to be a little disconnected. Those of you that are coming to Bible school, I will teach you how to preach sermons that are connected. I'm going to be taking a little bit here, a little bit there, trying to give you some truth tonight through all of this. But I heard, and and many of you have heard John Lennox speak. Uh, John Lennox, to me, is... I, I, I can listen to him for hours. I don't know what it is about his accent. I like the Irish accent. I can't duplicate it, so I won't try. But there's just something. It, it sounds intelligent. I don't know why. Just, he could tell me the story of the three little pigs, and it would sound intelligent, you know. Um, but I, I love to listen to him explain various things. And what's so impressive to me is, is a, an intellectual of his stature to also be such a grounded believer firm in the scripture in love with Jesus Christ and he doesn't back off of uh, being a creationist he doesn't he's not afraid to deal with all the truth that comes from Genesis he believes it exactly as Jesus believed it that in the beginning God made man and woman that God put the worlds together it wasn't a uh, this is how the scientists like to put it these days a mindless unguided process it wasn't that at all and and I heard John Lennox in a, in a lecture this week and, and he was giving a lecture on this verse and he said, in the beginning, God. And then he just paused there a while. So I must admit, my inspiration for this sermon, God got a hold of my heart as he was going through his lecture, as he started it. I said, my goodness, if we could just get to the fourth word. Science has gotten to the third word. As of 1927, scientists actually put together the theory behind the Big Bang and, and they have come up with a rational explanation for how everything exploded from, some, from, from something. They don't know what that something was or is, but they, they say at some point there was a beginning. Now scientists had hypothesized this since the 1200s, that there must have been a beginning, but they had no natural explanation. As of the 20th century, they started to put in some natural explanations, but they still could not answer the question, how did we get something from nothing? Now, this isn't a science lesson tonight. God knows I'm not qualified to give you one. But I do know that from what... These wonderful ideas, if anyone can tell me where they're coming from. I I do know that what I read in Genesis 1 makes perfect sense with what I see going on around me. When I see intelligence happening all around me in creation, there's order. You can study the creation. You can study the natural laws. There is order. All these wonderful ideas. There's this order. There's not chaos. Unlike the church service, there's order and not chaos. And when you look around, it's, it's hard. I don't have enough faith myself to be an atheistic, naturalistic evolutionist. I just can't make that leap to say an ordered intelligent universe sprung out of chaotic nothingness I am not that uh, filled with faith in the beginning it says God created the heaven and the earth in the beginning of what well I would say that three things began right here there was time there was space and there was matter did you know science has just recently confirmed that those three things have to happen concurrently you can't have one of those without the other two now we knew that from the time Moses wrote it But science has now confirmed it with their studies. If you had time with no space and matter, well, then to what does the time apply? Time indicates that there has to be at least a beginning or an end. If you didn't have a beginning or an end, you would call it eternity. You see? So so if you have time, it, it means there has to be something that you apply the time to, and that something would have to have either a beginning or an end or both. Time space and matter if you had time and matter so you have time when it's happening you have matter you have something that's happening but you have no space where do you put it see so you have to have space but if you have time and space and no matter then it really doesn't matter (laughs) because what's the purpose in having the space if there's nothing to put in the space so in Genesis 1 1 in the beginning time God created the heaven space and the earth matter He brought all three, in the beginning of what we know as the natural universe, God orchestrated and brought it out of nothingness into somethingness. Hundreds of years ago, robed priests would walk around villages and tell people that they were not smart enough to understand the Bible. 
and that because they had studied the Bible that the common man had to listen to everything the priest told them. No matter if it made sense or not. They said, we are educated. We have studied the original languages. We have access to the Bible. You don't. So we will tell you what to believe about God. And if you do not agree with us, then you are not allowed to function within our society. And people were excommunicated from the church if they did not listen to everything the priest said. Which, by the way, at the time was of horrible consequence because in those days, the government did not issue a birth certificate. After you were born, the mom and dad would run you down to the church and get you baptized as a baby. It was a law in the church. You had to do it. And the church would issue you a baptismal certificate. And that was the proof that you existed. That was your identification. What we now know as a birth certificate used to... it. The place of that was held by the baptismal certificate. So if at any point you disagreed with the priest, they would rip up your certificate and say, you no longer exist to us. Do you see the immense amount of power and how that can be abused? Now the priests weren't always lying. They didn't always have it wrong. They did say certain things that were true, such as Jesus died on a cross, that he rose the third day, that he was born to a virgin. But then they would slip things in like, if you want to have forgiveness, you have to pay us money. And you have to reverence the mother of Jesus and call her the mother of God. And if you die and you're not good enough, you go to purgatory. These things aren't found in the Bible, but, but the priest told the people, don't worry about whether or not it's in the Bible. God revealed it to us. We have studied it. We know. Just believe what we say. Now, after history comes along, you get to John Wycliffe late 1300s, he said it's not right that we just take their word for it. We need access to the Bible so we can check it for ourselves. And Wycliffe endeavored to put the Bible in the common language of the people. And therefore, he was the first one to translate the Bible into English. And as the common man began to read the Bible, they said, <gasps> what they've been telling us isn't true. There is no purgatory and praying for the dead doesn't work and Mary's not the mother of God. That's not true. And she wasn't sinless. She also, she also had to offer up sacrifices. Did you know that? Mary said, Mary said in Luke chapter 1, I rejoice in God my Savior. If she's sinless, why does she need a Savior? She says the Bible overthrew many of the things that the priests were telling the people and as more and more common men got their hand on the Bible, their eyes began to open and they realized, wait a minute. We have been told to just believe what the priests tell us, not to question it, lest we be excommunicated. We can't function in society. Now that was a travesty, wasn't it? That, that is what we refer to in history as the Dark Ages. And it's a fitting name. The people were in the dark. The Bible says, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It says, The entrance of thy word giveth light. When you tell the people, Don't read the Bible, take my word for it, you're shutting off the light. But little do we know that that same process has reemerged, but not under the heading of religion, but under the heading of science. No longer are they wearing long black robes, they're wearing white lab coats. And they come and say, listen, you're not as educated as we are. We've studied all this out. Just take our word for it. Evolution is true. Take our word for it. There's no way that the account of Genesis and creation and Noah's flood, there's no way that can be right. Why? We're scientists and we've proved it. And therefore, I believe a lot of Christians have taken that advice and said, okay, listen, we'll back off. You have the education. What do we know We'll just take your word for it. And folks, if you dig a little deeper, and by no means, and I'm not an expert, and I get that, but I've tried to do my due diligence. I've tried to look into it. I have not found one instance where anything in science would overthrow my faith in the creation story as you read it in Genesis 1. And that's not me talking just, well, bless God, I'm a Bible-thumping preacher, and I believe it, I don't care what the world said. I do take seriously what these other people have to say. I do try to listen. I've read their books. I've watched their videos. I've tried to learn. And I think science is a wonderful thing. I have learned a lot from it. It has built my appreciation for how glorious God's creation is. But I believe science is limited. Here's what scares me. 
Peter Atkins, one of the world's leading, um, I believe he's a chemist, He's written, I think, over 80 books on scientific topics. A very educated man. He said, science can answer everything. Science can answer everything. Ditto Richard Dawkins. Ditto the late Christopher Hitchens. They said, science can answer everything. Do you realize that, and and John Lennox points this out, that's a self-defeating statement. As soon as you say science can answer everything, how do you prove that statement's true? You can't prove that statement with science. You can't take that to a lab and test it. That is a philosophical statement. So science couldn't possibly answer everything. You need philosophy to answer that. It's a self-defeating statement, which is an excellent point. Science has limits. And all of these staunch atheist they all ring this same bell and they say, well, we have such great faith in science. We realize we don't know everything, but we have made such tremendous progress in the last 100, 150 years. We are confident that in the next 50, 100 years, if we keep working hard and, and uh, corroborate with each other, surely and cooperate, surely we will be able to answer the deep mysteries of the universe. That's called blind faith. The universe never promised them answers. See, when, when we talk about faith, folks, please be, let's make a distinction tonight between what we mean as biblical faith and what the world thinks of as blind faith. When we say we believe certain things by faith, we walk by faith and not by sight, we believe these things because God revealed them and then confirmed them with real evidence that people could verify. That's how we have the Bible in our hands today. These are the things that were verifiably true. The things that couldn't be verified were left aside and we call them apocrypha or pseudepigrapha, one thing or the other. We walk by what God has revealed, but when science says we can answer everything, well, not quite everything, but we believe one day if we work hard, we will. That's a statement of blind faith. Science is a wonderful thing. And I certainly don't mean to discourage any of you from looking into the field of science. I think it's wonderful, but limits. John Lennox uses this illustration all the time. Uh, You walk past the, uh, the stove and there's a kettle with water on it and it's boiling. And somebody might ask the question, why is the water boiling? Well, now there's a couple ways you could answer that question. One way is to say, well, there's energy you see passing uh, from, from a source into the metal of the kettle and it's, it's causing that metal to heat up and then the heat is transferred to the water and the water molecules begin to get agitated because of the heat and they begin to move faster and that creates the heat and then the steam blows out because the liquid turns to a gas. And Well, that's a very fine scientific explanation for why the water is boiling. Heat moved and then the energy built up and, but Grandma could come in five seconds after that and said the reason the water is boiling is because I want some tea. Both answers are true. Do you hear that? Both answers are true. If, if I could maybe make one distinction in that, I would say the first question is, is how is the water boiling? And then grandma actually told us why the water is boiling. And this is where science is so amazing. To be able to explain to us the inner workings of an atom, that's mind-blowing. To be able to look into the distant galaxies, absolutely breathtaking they can explain the how but just explaining to us how a thing works does not do away with the fact that somebody made it work like that nor does it tell us why it works like that again John Lennox I refer to him on this but he uses this one a lot he says just because you understand how the motor of a Ford vehicle works does not do away with the man Henry Ford You can understand how it operates. But that doesn't mean Henry Ford no longer exists because you understand the inner workings of a combustible engine. As a matter of fact, it would point you directly to Henry Ford. You would say, this is tremendous. Let me meet the great mind that put this together. And that's what the universe is meant to do, to point us to the one who put it all together. Now, you might, you might, and... I don't think I'd blame you too, too much. You might be a little on edge about listening to the rest of the sermon. You say, but Brother Mike, you're just a pastor. You're not a scientist, so you're really not qualified to say anything about 
this subject of science. You know, stick to your field. Fair enough, okay. If you would like to adopt that, that position, you're welcome to it. But then, let's be fair and balanced. Do not let a scientist tell you anything about God. Not his field. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to be balanced about it, right? Can I ask you to hold your place in Genesis? Flip over to Colossians chapter 1. And I will begin to disconnect my sermon now. Colossians chapter 1. Please continue to hold Genesis. I don't think you'll struggle too much to find it again if you let it go. But Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 verse number 15. Paul says here speaking about Christ who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. So that is the first cause. Everything comes from Him. In verse 16, For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things and by Him all things consist. In Hebrews it says all things are held together by the word of his power. That is where we get the natural laws from. God said that it should act like this and it does. It follows his word. That's how DNA works, right? They found it finally. It's about 3.5 billion letters or something like that long. But they found that it's actually four letters. A, G, C, and T. And in various orders... We are made up of words because in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. So it makes perfect sense that all of creation is encoded with letters that make up words. In verse 18, it says, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And here's what I'd really like to get to, that in all things, He might have the preeminence. He gets first place. Now, why do we do this? In the beginning, where do we start? What's the right place to start? Where's the right, who's the right place to start? In the beginning, God. I don't care what part of your life you're talking about in the beginning of it. Whichever endeavor you take on tomorrow, in the beginning, God. He deserves the preeminent place. That word preeminent means superiority. Or the fact of surpassing all others. Doesn't that describe the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly? Superiority. He surpasses everything else. Let that be a living truth for you starting tonight, going on into your week tomorrow. In the beginning of your week, God. Let Him have the preeminence. When we read Genesis 1, here's what we find. We find that God created order to the universe. Things work in a rational and intelligent way. He created order. He created morality. We believe in good and evil because we are made in the image of God. God created purpose. When God created man and woman, he said they should have dominion over the fishes of the sea. They should subdue things. He gave them a purpose. He told Adam to work in the garden. He gave them something to do. He gave his creation a structure of authority. Adam and Eve were to rule over it and then later on, of course, there was the structure within the home as well. Let me tell you something else he created and please hear this. He created an equality amongst the human race. He didn't say that this human is made in the image of God but that other human wasn't. We all, as proceeding from Adam, we have that same image and that gives everybody regardless of their skin color, regardless of their culture or the language they speak, it gives them equal value in the sight of God. Genesis 1 also tells us that there are proper divisions that need to be made. God, right from the get-go, He divided the light from the darkness. He divided the, he divided the firmament from the water. He divided the land from the sea. He divided the sun, the moon, the stars. He divided man and woman. They're not the same. Amen. Now please, please, come on now. Say amen to that. Say amen to that. They're not the same. 
They're not the same. And for you feminists, don't get excited here. Didn't say one's better than the other. (laughs) Didn't say that. But they're not the same. We're different. We're allowed to say that, right? We're different. But of equal value. Equal value. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Let me tell you something else God did on that first chapter of the Bible. He created a standard for which to aim. By the end of the, his work week, you know what he said? He, looked, he turned around and he said, I did a good job. See, when you wake up and go to work tomorrow, if you will put in the beginning of your work week, God, all of these things can fall into place. And you say, now, because I believe in Genesis 1, I believe in this kind of God. There's a reason to get out of bed. There's a right way to do it, a wrong way to do it. There's a time for this and that, and I will divide properly. I will treat people fairly and with value. I will listen to them. I will respect them because they also were made in that same image as I was. And I will try to do my level best at whatever I'm doing because that's how God did it in the first week. It's amazing when putting God in the beginning of everything, all of life seems to take on a better structure. So I'd like to give you a few disconnected ideas. You can come back to Genesis if you'd like. We're going to put him in the beginning of just three things tonight. There are so many other things that he should be the beginning of. I'm just going to grab three of them tonight. Genesis chapter 1, verse number 3. The first thing, the first place God needs to be the beginning of is your day. The beginning of your day. In Genesis 1, verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. That was the name of the light. Had nothing to do with time. The first use of the word day had nothing to do with time. It was a proper name for the light. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning, now here comes time, were the first day. So if I can put it like this, in the beginning of your day, God. Get to the fourth word of verse 1. In the beginning of your day, God. Start the day with God. When you stand up tomorrow, let God be the first one you speak to. Let your mind sweetly drift off into fellowship with Him. Let your mind wander off into awesome admiration. Maybe have that song humming in your heart, My God, how great Thou art. You kept me through the night. Let's not take that for granted. We live in South Africa. You kept me through the night. I woke up in the morning and all is well. I'm still breathing. My family is safe. I'm going to go to my kitchen and actually make the energy pass through the metal that will heat the water to boil the tea. All of that. There's a purpose. Start the day talking to God. Can I ask you to hold this? Just flip over to Psalm chapter 5, just real quick if you would. Start your day with God. Uh, this week, university started back. Many of you students uh, were back at class this week. And here's the overwhelming message I've gotten from people this week. It was a rough week. <laughs> All right? Can I ask you students to participate for a moment? To be honest, anybody had a rough week? Was this an especially rough week this week? Anybody? Rough week? Students. Y'all, put your hand down. You can't student. Put your hand down. Audemont, you graduated. Put your hand down. Amen. All right, a few of you had a rough week. Just, I know I, don't, I didn't talk to all the students, obviously, but just the few that I did speak with, it seems like they had a rough week. I am not telling you that starting your day with God is going to make every day go smoother, but I, I will tell you, I will tell you it will improve the quality of the day. The prof may still give you a lot of homework. The classmates around you may still get on your nerves. Your car may still break down. Your pipes may still burst at home. All of that may still happen, right? Because I heard all of that this week. But walking with God right from the moment you open your eyes is going to make it a whole lot better. It's going to make it a whole lot better. David said this in Psalm 5, verse number 3. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. Well, that's a good positive way to start the day. Start it on a high note. (laughs) 
Start the day on the highest note possible. Lift your eyes up to heaven. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and say, Now, I want you to give me some direction. I want you to order my universe today. The scientists say that we are living in a mindless, unguided process, right? That everything is here, like this, that everything is here by accident. And that there's no purpose, it's a mindless, unguided process. Here's what happens when you leave God out of your day. Your day ends up being a mindless, unguided process. And you get to the end of the day, frustrated, worn out, turn around and go, now what was the purpose of that? That's why you need to start with in the beginning God. And let Him order it and let Him divide it up as He sees fit and give value to it and give purpose to it and give moral quality to it start the day with God in Bible school I had to I had school each night from six o'clock to ten o'clock and then in the day had to work so I would usually work the opening shift I would open the restaurant at five and then I'd get off at one or two in the afternoon so if I get up at five or if I let's say start work at five I have to be there at five I, I get up at three I wanted to spend some time with God I'm not saying that you need to do that same thing. You understand this. I, I'm just telling you an illustration. Some of you are going to spend better time with God in the evening, and I understand that. And if you are going to do better to read your Bible at night because you're actually going to be awake and aware and paying attention, by all means, please do it that way. If you can slip into your prayer closet and spend a good 30, 45 minutes, a good hour with God before you go to sleep, by all means, do me a favor. If you can't spend an hour or two with God in the morning, can you at least acknowledge Him? Can you at least wait until you've heard from God before you rush out of the house? We sang the song tonight, right? Number 264. And He walks with me. And He talks with me. Now why would you want to put that off to the end of the day? If you want to spend that full hour, two hours of quiet time in the evening, in the cool of the day, by all means. But don't forget to start the day by at least acknowledging Him. One of the things I look forward to the most in my house, in our home, when we wake up, and I, I'm pretty sure this is how it goes in most homes, right? I ask Christina, how did you sleep? How many of you do that as well? You ask everybody, how did you sleep? It's just nice way to start a conversation I guess how'd you sleep we don't do that when we get to church right <laughs> hey how you doing how'd you sleep I just doesn't seem to be the right time for that right we're, we're past that but at home how'd you sleep and, and then and the, we we acknowledge each other's presence I shudder to think of what it would be like in a home where I could just walk through the house and I I know other people are there but I don't even give them a friendly nod I don't even acknowledge that they woke up. I don't even, even grunt their direction. What a miserable existence to know that they're in the house and have no interaction with them. Listen, the presence of God, you cannot escape it. God is everywhere. Do you believe that tonight? You believe that tonight, that you cannot run away from God's omnipresence? He's everywhere. The problem is we don't take time enough to recognize it. You have to look for that. You have to acknowledge that. He says, draw nigh to me, and I'll draw nigh to you. How about you start that process in the beginning of your day? Start it with God. You don't need another mindless, unguided day. You need a supernaturally guided, purposeful day. Let that start with God. Genesis 1, verse number 27. I'll give you the second thing. Genesis 1 and 27. In verse 26, he talks about how he made man. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and he'd have dominion and so forth. In verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Genesis 1 is a more, let's call it an overview of creation. Genesis 2 is not a separate account of creation. It fills in the gaps. It fills in the little pieces of, of information that you didn't get from Genesis 1. The details for how the woman was created, taken from the rib of Adam and so forth. 
But in verse 27, you see male and female created he them. So, so my second point is this. In the beginning of your marriage, God. Now I realize that in an evening service, we generally have a few more students or a slightly younger crowd. But this is applicable to everyone, even though maybe you've been married for 15, 20 years. In the beginning of a godly marriage, you must have God. And if you are still on the hunt, on the prowl, looking for that perfect one to marry, <laughs> that's the right word to use. <laughs> if you're still in the hunt, in the beginning of your hunt, God. God. Can, can I ask you to hold this? I want to show you a verse in Proverbs. Uh, you know what? If you'd like to drop Genesis, I guess you could now. But come to Proverbs chapter 18. Let me show you a verse just real quick. Proverbs chapter 18. Sprieka. Chapter 18, verse 22. When we read in Genesis chapter 2 why God created the woman, we, we immediately read that God intended for the two genders to operate differently. You say, how do you know that? Because he looked at Adam and said, you can't do this by yourself, buddy. <laughs> You're not equipped. It's not good for the man to be alone. Bless your heart. You're just not meant to be alone. You need some help. You need some serious help. You need some specialized help. So you know what God did? He didn't take a piece of dirt and create the woman. That's how he did the man. He took the woman. Listen, he didn't. We are, if you've ever wondered why men are more at ease with filth and dirt, it's because we came from that. That's where we come from. We feel at home there. We don't mind the mess. We can smell for weeks and not even know it. That's how we roll. But it's offensive to the lady folk. They get it, because they didn't come from the dirt. They're different, and it's once you figure out that they're different, listen, then you don't expect your spouse to act the same way you would in a given situation. Why? Not the same gender. Different. So they're going to react different. They, they need different things. So I just don't understand why she isn't happy with this and this, because she's not you. She is a woman. She needs something different. You see, when we think of it like this, say, well, there was the man first, and the woman comes from the man, so the man is better. Yeah, but where did all the men come from that are here now? Women. <laughs> we did. Did you know the Apostle Paul pointed that out in 1 Corinthians 11? He said, the woman is of the man, but the men are by the women. Through the natural process, see? There was a miraculous in the natural. So, so Paul, what his point is, is stop uh, arguing about who's better. You're different. You both have value because God has put you together to complement one another so that when the two put, are put together as one, it creates exactly the union God was aiming for. When both parties are doing what they were built to do. If you really want to think about it, you say, well, the woman was a secondary creation, so she's a secondary creature and she's worth a little less. Oh, but man, if you think about it, men, think about it, you just weren't going to cut it, so God had to bring the woman into existence to help you out because you weren't enough by yourself. And rather, you know, men, we came from the same place as the Breifleis uh, does. Cows, dogs, snakes came from the dirt, just like us. You know, the woman is something incredibly special. She came from the rib of a man. None other of God's creation can say that. She has her own special place in God's creation. So she deserves a little more respect, a little more honor, a little more uh, gentility and care and, and fragility. So we honor her as the weaker vessel because nothing else is like her. And that's why we can't figure her out. <laughs> you can't run any scientific studies on that doesn't work it doesn't work <laughs> Proverbs 18 verse number 22 whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing now I've had too many men stop right there and they say see there that, that, that woman of mine she's just a good thing 
Oh, oh yeah, I know. Oh, oh. Hurry up, Mike. Get on to the other verse. But <laughs> Whoso findeth a wife, the Bible's not calling the wife the thing. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing. That is, you found a marriage, and the marriage is a good thing. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. Hey, buddy, he did you a favor. <laughs> you owe him one now. <laughs> he did you a favor. He brought you a wife. And, and if God's brought you a godly wife, you owe him a double favor. <laughs> Her price is far above rubies, the Bible says. Now, if you view your marriage as a God-ordained institution, if you view your spouse as a gift from God, you might treat them with that sort of value. Rather than saying, I'm going to treat you, woman, I'll treat you, man, like you deserve. Oh, don't do that. Don't do that. Instead, in the beginning of your marriage, put God right there and say, now God, how do you want me to treat my spouse? What value do you place on this relationship we have? And let me give the proper attention to my marriage based on the way God intended for it to be. And if you'll put God at the beginning of your marriage, I promise it can only help. People ask quite often, and it's a good question, how do you know which one is the right one? How do you know who to marry? Some of you young folk, aren't you wondering about that? <laughs> Some of you older folk are wondering about that. <laughs> Look for this. Don't look for a good man. Ladies, don't look for a good man. Guys, don't look for a good woman. Look for a godly one. Look for somebody that's going to put God in the beginning of everything they do. And if they'll do that, then the relationship has a chance to grow and actually come out successful. Look for that. Look for that. Y you know... What's, what would help a lot of folks? Maybe you started off your marriage based on something else. Anything else. You know what I would recommend? Go back to the beginning. Start again. Renew your vows. Take your husband, take your wife, come back to the altar and say, now we're going to begin again. And in the beginning of this version of our marriage, God comes first. So my vow to you is I am going to, to the very best of my ability, be the spouse that God wants me to be for you. That is something to aspire to. And lastly, would you flip to John chapter 1 and we'll finish up here. In the beginning of your day, put God there. In the beginning of your marriage or any relationship you're seeking put God at the beginning of it and then lastly the beginning of salvation and that is to say the beginning of your relationship with God starts with God now that might seem obvious but let me explain what I mean by that because a lot of people try to establish a relationship with God by getting involved in the church and that's not altogether bad but what you might be missing is you have a relationship with the church and not God. I get involved with a cell group. I get involved with a youth group. And that's great. It's good to have that fellowship and that accountability. But that's not the same as starting it with God. I want to go to heaven when I die, so I get baptized. You have a relationship with the Potrestrum Municipality Water System. <laughs> not with God. Far from God. God is pure. The water is not. <laughs> Drink no longer water, amen. If you want to have a real relationship with God, it starts with God. And I mean this in, in the deepest sense because the Bible says no man seeks after God. You understand, we are so lost, we don't know how lost we are. We don't even know what to look for, who to look for, where to start, where to end. So God has to come looking for us. Now that doesn't take away our choice. God comes looking for us and then introduces himself and convicts us and draws us to him. He seeks so that he can save. But he can only save if we are willing to accept him and receive him as our savior. And I, I'd like to show you that in John 1. Look at, look at how John writes this. John 1 verse 1. In the beginning. That tells me that when I go to Genesis 1... 
And then I read John chapter 1. There's a connection here. The one who started it all in Genesis is now coming down into his creation, down to his inhabited planet, this earth, to fellowship with and declare himself to mankind. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made. That was made. Come down to verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. I heard one preacher say that that might be the greatest tragedy spelled out in the Bible. What a concise way to explain what happened with Jesus coming to the earth. He was in the world, the world was made by him, and they didn't recognize him. They completely missed it. Verse 11, he came unto his own, speaking of Israel, and his own received him not. If anybody should have recognized him, it was them. They had the scripture. In verse 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Do you see, you still have the responsibility to receive what he is showing you. He will manifest himself to you. He will make sure you understand that it was his death on the cross that paid for your sins getting baptized, joining a church, doing the very best you can to be a good person is not enough. That's why he had to come to this earth. If all you had to do was be the best you could be, Jesus wouldn't have needed to die. Do you understand that tonight? We were so lost, he had to go all the way to the cross. If we could have fixed ourselves by just self-improvement, Jesus would have shown up and said, listen everybody, I created the world. Watch these miracles I can do. Boom, boom, boom. See, creator. Now guys, do a better job. Come on, keep these commandments. Try your best and I'll let you in one day. Okay, bye-bye. And then gone back. If that's all you have to do, then he would have come down, given us a very stern reminding, and then go back. That's not how the story went. He came to this earth. He lived 33 years perfectly. And then at the end of his life, he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays. And he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He is about to take on the sin of the world, the wrath of God, the punishment for our sin. He says, Father, if there's any way that this can pass, please, let's find another way. He finished that prayer by saying, not my will, but thine be done. If there's no other way to save mankind, then I will die in their place. We know the answer. We know what the Father said. It was not possible that the cup could pass from him. He had to drink it so that you and I could be saved. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have gone everyone to His own way and the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And Jesus did it willingly because He loves you. He came to the earth to seek and to save. He went back to heaven. You know what happened then? He sent the Holy Spirit and to this very day, he's still seeking. And if you would like to start a relationship with God, be truly born again, and know that you're saved, it begins with you submitting at the foot of the cross and saying, Lord, I can't save myself. I will receive what you did for me. In the beginning of your salvation, God, accept what he did for you. That's where it all starts. Let's all stand, if you would, please. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed just for a moment. Baltimore, if you'd play something quietly. will not take long, but I would like to ask you to think on this for a moment. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Friend, if you died tonight, are you 100% sure that you would go to heaven?
You can be. It can start tonight. But it starts with you receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you feel the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart tonight, would you please react to that? Don't fight against it. Tomorrow morning, you wake up. Mondays are never fun. Start the day with God. If you can't give Him an hour or two, give Him, give him some time. Do as David said. God, I'll make my, you'll hear my voice in the morning. I'll lift my head and I'll look up. Turn your eyes upon Jesus first thing. You married folk. Oh, take your, take your spouse as a gift. Love him or her as God intended you to. Put God at the beginning of your marriage. In just a moment, I'm going to pray and we'll close the service. But I'd like to ask just quickly, if you're here tonight and you have never received the Lord Jesus Christ, you've never asked Him to save you, would you lift your hand? You can put it right back down. I'm, I would just like to pray for you. I won't point you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. I would just like to know who I'm praying for. Thank you. I appreciate the, those hands. Thank you. Thank you for the honesty. Thank you. I see that hand. Thank you. This is where it can all start for you. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. It can start right now. This can be your beginning. Walking with God. Sinner, if you have any questions, please find me after the service. If you'd like to know for sure that you're saved, I'd be happy to show you all you need to see from the Bible. Answer any questions. Father, thank you this, this evening. Thank you for speaking to our hearts. Lord, we not only want to begin the day with you, we want to end it with you. Lord, we want to enjoy your presence all through the day. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming into this world. Thank you for making salvation possible. Thank you for showing us all we need to see about marriage, about how to go through a day with purpose and value. And Lord, I want to pray for those hands that went up. Please. God, you, you came to seek and to save. Draw those sinners to you, Lord. Bring those lost sheep home. And let this be the beginning of their life with you. Thank you for helping us today. What a good day. Thank you, God, for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.